0: story 17 of lucy maud montgomery short stories 1907 to 1908 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by mary agnew lucy maud montgomery short stories 1907 to 1908 by lucy maud montgomery story 17 the genesis of the Donut club when john henry died there seemed to be nothing for me to do but pack up and go back east i didn't want to do it but forty-five years of sojourning in this world have taught me that a body has to do a good many things she doesn't want to do and that most of them turn out to be for the best in the long run but i knew perfectly well that it wasn't best for me or anybody else that I should go back to live with William and Susanna, and I couldn't think what Providence was about when things seemed to point that way. I wanted to stay in Carlton. I loved the big, straggling, bustling little town that always reminded me of a lanky, overgrown schoolboy, all arms and legs, but full to the brim with enthusiasm and splendid ideas. I knew Carlton was bound to grow up into a magnificent city, and i wanted to be there and see it grow and watch it develop and i loved the whole big breezy golden west with the rush and tingle of its young life and more than all i loved my boys and what was i going to do without them or they without me was even more than i knew though i tried to think providence might know but there was no place in carlton for me the only thing to do was to go back east and I knew that all the time, even when I was desperately praying, that I might find a way to remain. there's not much comfort or help either praying one way and believing another. I'd lived down east in Norfield all my life until five years ago lived with my brother William and his wife. Norfield was a little pinched-up village where everybody knew more about you than you did about yourself, and you couldn't turn around without being commented upon. William and Susanna were kind to me, but I was just the old maid's sister of no importance to anybody, and I never felt as if I were really living. I was simply vegetating on, and wouldn't be missed by a single soul if I died. It is a horrible feeling, but I didn't expect it would be any different, and I had made up my mind that when I died I would have the word Wasted carved on my tombstone. It wouldn't be conventional at all but i'd been conventional all my life and i was determined i'd have something done out of the common even if i had to wait until i was dead to have it then all at once the letter came from john henry my brother out west he wrote that his wife had died and he wanted me to go and keep house for him i sat right down and wrote him i'd go and in a week's time i started it made quite a commotion I had that much satisfaction out of it to begin with susanna wasn't well too pleased i was only the old maid's sister but i was a good cook and help was scarce in northfield all the neighbors shook their heads and warned me i wouldn't like it i was too old to change my ways and i'd be dreadfully homesick and i'd find the west too rough and boisterous i just smiled and said nothing well i came out here to carlton and from the time i got here i was perfectly happy john henry had a little rented house and he was as poor as a church mouse being the 'er ne'er-to-well of our family and the best loved as 'er ne'er-do-wells are so apt to be he'd nearly died of lonesomeness since his wife's death and he was so glad to see me that was delightful in itself and i was just in my element getting that little house fixed up cosy and homelike and cooking the most elegant meals there wasn't much work to do just for me and him and i got to squaw in to wash and scrub i never thought about northfield except to thank goodness i would escaped from it and john henry and i were as happy as a king and a queen then after a while my activities began to sprout and branch out and the direction they took was boys. Carleton was full of boys, like all the western towns, overflowing with them, as you might say, young fellows just let loose from home and mother, some of them dying of homesickness, and some of them beginning to run wild and get into risky ways, some of them smart, some of them lazy, some ugly and some handsome, but all of them boys lovable rollicking boys with the makings of good men in them if there was anybody to take hold of them and cut the pattern right but liable to be spoiled just because there wasn't anybody well i did what i could it began with john henry bringing home some of them that worked in his office to spend the evening now and again and they told the other fellows and asked leave to bring them too and before long "'It got to be that there never was an evening "'there wasn't some of them there. "'Aunt Pattying me. "'I told them from the start I would not be called Miss. "'When a woman has been Miss for 45 years, "'she gets tired of it. "'So Aunt Patty it was, and Aunt Patty it remained, "'and I loved all those dear boys as if they'd been my own. "'They told me all their troubles, "'and I mothered them and cheered them up and scolded them, and finally topped off with a jolly good supper for talk as you like you can't preach much good into a boy if he's got an aching void in his stomach fill that up with tasty victuals and then you can do something with his spiritual nature if a boy is well stuffed with good things and won't listen to advice you might as well stop wasting your breath on him because there is something radically wrong with him probably his grandfather had dyspepsia and a dyspeptic ancestor is worse for a boy than predestination, in my opinion. Anyway, most of my boys took to going to church and Bible class of their own accord, after I'd been their aunt for a while. The young minister thought it was all his doings, and I let him think so, to keep him cheered up. He was a nice boy himself, and often dropped in of an evening too, but I never would let him talk theology until after supper his views always seemed so much mellower then and didn't puzzle the other boys more than was wholesome for them this went on for five glorious years the only years of my life i'd ever lived and then came as i thought the end of everything john henry took typhoid and died at first that was all i could think of and when i got so i could think of other things there was as i have said nothing for me to do but go back east. The boys, who had been as good as gold to me all through my trouble, felt dreadfully bad over this, and coaxed me hard to stay. They said if I'd start a boarding-house, I'd have all the boarders I could accommodate, but I knew it was no use to think of that, because I wasn't strong enough, and help was so hard to get. No, there was nothing for it but Northfield and the stagnation again, with not a stray boy anywhere to mother. I looked the dismal prospect square in the face, and made up my mind to it. But I was determined to give my boys one good celebration before I went anyway. It was near Thanksgiving, and I resolved they should have a dinner that would keep my memory green for a while, a real old-fashioned Thanksgiving dinner such as they used to have at home. I knew it would cost more than I could really afford, but I shut my eyes to that aspect of the question i was going back to strict eastern economy for the rest of my days and i meant to indulge in one wild blissful riot of extravagance before i was cooped up again i counted up the boys i must have and there were fifteen including the minister i invited them a fortnight ahead to make sure of getting them though i needn't have worried for they all said they would have broken an engagement to dine with the king for one of my dinners the minister said he had been feeling so homesick He was afraid he wouldn't be able to preach a real thankful sermon. But now he was comfortably sure that his sermon would be overflowing with gratitude. I just threw myself heart and soul into the preparations for that dinner. I had three turkeys and two suckling pigs and mince pies and pumpkin pies and apple pies and doughnuts and fruitcake and cranberry sauce and brown bread and ever so many other things to fill up the chinks. THE NIGHT BEFORE THANKSGIVING EVERYTHING WAS READY, AND I WAS SO TIRED I COULD HARDLY TALK TO JIMMY NELSON WHEN HE DROPPED IN. JIMMY HAD SOMETHING ON HIS MIND, I SAW THAT, SO I SAID, FESS UP, JIMMY, AND YOU'LL BE ABLE TO ENJOY YOUR CALL. I WANT TO ASK A FAVOR OF YOU, AUNT PATTY, SAID JIMMY. I KNEW I SHOULD HAVE TO GRANT IT. NOBODY COULD REFUSE JIMMY ANYTHING. He looks so much like a nice, clean, pink-and-white little schoolboy whose mother has just scrubbed his face and told him to be good. At the same time, he was one of the wildest young scamps in Carleton, or had been until a year ago. I'd got him well set on the road to Reformation, and felt worse about leaving him than any of the rest of them. I knew he was just at the critical point. "'With somebody to tide him over for the next half-year, "'he'd probably go straight for the rest of his life. "'But if he were left to himself, "'he'd likely just slip back to his old set and ways.' "'I want you to let me bring my Uncle Joe to dinner tomorrow,' said Jimmy. "'The poor old fellow is stranded here for Thanksgiving, "'and he hates hotels. May I?' "'Of course,' I said heartily wondering why Jimmy seemed to think I mightn't want his Uncle Joe. Bring him right along. Thanks, said Jimmy. He'll be more than pleased. Your sublime cookery will delight him. He adores the West, but he can't endure its cooking. He's always harping on his mother's pantry and the good old down-east dinners. He's dyspeptic and pessimistic most of the time, and he's got half a dozen cronies just like himself. All they think is railroads and bills of fare. "'Railroads!' I cried, and then an awful thought assailed me. "'Jimmy Nelson, your uncle isn't—isn't—he can't be Joseph P. Nelson. "'The rich Joseph P. Nelson?' "'Oh, he's rich enough,' said Jimmy, getting up and reaching for his hat. "'In dollars, that is. Some ways he's poor enough. "'Well, I must be going. Thanks ever so much for letting me bring Uncle Joe.' And that rascal was gone, leaving me crushed. Joseph Nelson was coming to my house for dinner. Joseph P. Nelson, the Millionaire Railroad King, who kept his own chef and was accustomed to dining with the Great Ones of the Earth? I was afraid I should never be able to forgive Jimmy. I couldn't sleep a wink that night, and I cooked that dinner next day in a terrible state of mind. Every ring that came to the door made my heart jump. But in the end, jimmy didn't ring at all just walked in with his uncle in tow the minute i saw joseph p i knew i needn't be scared of him he just looked real common he was little and thin and kind of bored looking with gray hair and whiskers and his clothes were next door to downright shabbiness if it hadn't been for the thought of that chef i wouldn't have felt a bit ashamed of my old-fashioned thanksgiving spread when joseph p sat down to the table he stopped looking bored all the time the minister was saying grace that man simply stared at the big plated of doughnuts near my end of the table as if he'd never seen anything like them before all the boys talked and laughed while they were eating but joseph p just ate tucking away turkey and vegetables and keeping an anxious eye on those doughnuts as if he was afraid somebody else would get a hold of them before his turn came "'I wished I was sure it was etiquette to tell him not to worry "'because there were plenty more in the pantry. "'By the time he'd been helped three times to mince pie, "'I gave up feeling bad about the chef. "'He finished off with the doughnuts, "'and I shan't tell you how many of them he devoured "'because I would not be believed. "'Most of the boys had to go away soon after dinner. "'Joseph P. shook hands with me absently and merely said, "'Good afternoon, Miss Porter.' I didn't think he seemed at all grateful for his dinner, but that didn't worry me, because it was for my boys I'd got it up, not for a dyspeptic billionaires whose digestion had been spoiled by private chefs. And my boys had appreciated it. There wasn't any doubt about that. Peter Crockett and Tommy Gray stayed to help me wash the dishes, and we had the jolliest time ever. Afterward, we picked the turkey bones. But that night, I realized that I was once more a useless, lonely old woman. I cried myself to sleep, and the next morning I hadn't spunk enough to cook myself a dinner. I dined off some crackers and the remnants of the apple pies, and I was sitting staring at the crumbs when the bell rang. I wiped away my tears and went to the door. Joseph P. Nelson was standing there, and he said, without wasting any words, it was easy to see how that man managed to get railroads built where nobody else could manage it, that he had called to see me on a little matter of business. He took just ten minutes to make it clear to me, and when I saw the whole project I was the happiest woman in Carleton or out of it. He said he had never eaten such a Thanksgiving dinner as mine, and that I was the woman he'd been looking for for years. He said that he had a few business friends who had been brought up in a down-east farm like himself, and never got over their hankering for old-fashioned cookery. That is something we can't get here with all our money, he said. Now, Miss Porter, my nephew tells me that you wish to remain in Carlton, if you can find some way of supporting yourself. I have a proposition to make to you. These aforesaid friends of mine and I expect to spend most of our time in Carleton for the next few years. In fact, we shall probably make it our home eventually. It's going to be the City of the West after a while, and the center of a dozen railroads. Well, we mean to equip a small private restaurant for ourselves, and we want you to take charge of it. You won't have to do much except oversee the business and arrange the bills of fare." We want plain, substantial, old-time meals and cookery. When we have a hankering for doughnuts and apple pies and cranberry tarts, we want to know just where to get them and have them the right kind. We're all horribly tired of hotel fare and fancy folder oils with French names. A place where we can get a dinner such as you served yesterday would be a boon to us. We'd have started the restaurant long ago if we could have got a suitable person to take charge of it. He named the salary the club would pay, and the very sound of it made me feel rich. You may be sure I didn't take long to decide. That was a year ago, and today the Donut Club, as they call themselves, is a huge success, and the fame of it has gone abroad in the land, although they are pretty exclusive and keep all their good things close enough to themselves. Joseph P. took a Scotch peer there to dinner one day last week. Jimmy Nelson told me afterward that the man said it was the only satisfying meal he had had since he left the old country. As for me, I have my little house, my very own, and no rented one, and all my dear boys, and I'm a happy old busybody. You see, Providence did answer my prayers in spite of my lack of faith. But, of course, he uses means, and that Thanksgiving dinner of mine was the earthy instrument of it all. End of The Genesis of the Donut Club Read by Mary Agnew